So what are we going to say about things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against God's elect people? It is God who acquits them. Who is going to convict them? It is Christ Jesus who died, even more who was raised and who is also at God's right side. It is Christ Jesus who also pleads our case for us. Who will separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress or harassment or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, we are being put to death all day long for your sake. We are treated like sheep for slaughter. But in all these things, we win a sweeping victory through the one who loved us. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not death or life, not angels or rulers, not present things or future things, not powers or height or depth, or any other thing that is created. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. So today, we're talking about hell. Who's pumped? This is a really tough and important subject uh, because it's something that plagues a lot of us. A recent survey a couple years ago found that 58% of Americans believe in a literal hell, which is a quite strikingly high number, I think. So you definitely don't have to do this. This is a really personal question. But uh, if you're willing and it feels safe, could folks raise their hands if you're somebody who has experienced a kind of embodied fear of the threat of hell at some point in your life? A lot of folks here. I just want anyone who's feeling that way or who has felt that way to notice. Can folks put their hands up again and just kind of look around? Like, this is a fear that lives in a lot of our bodies. And so if you are someone who is afraid of the threat of hell, I just want you to know that you're not alone. But in that same survey, then, it means that 42% of people say they don't believe in a literal hell. And so if you think that the idea of hell is like really bogus, you are also not alone. And frankly, if you think hell is totally bogus and you're still afraid, you're still not alone. This is something that has been used, I would say, to torture and torment, to control and coerce many of us from the time that we were very small children. We are rounding out our series, Lies I've Heard in Church, and one of the lies that far too many of us have heard is, you're going to hell. Now, I want to come right off the bat and say, I believe that that's a lie. I believe that's a lie for so many reasons that 
I, I went to outline this sermon and very quickly realized I had about six sermons crammed in here. So I'm going to do my best to pare down and tell you what feels important today. But know that there are so many layers to why the idea that you're going to hell is a lie, is abusive, is manipulative. And I would really like to heal ourselves and our community from that lie. And I believe we can with the help of the love of God and one another. But when we're talking about hell, the people who are sure of it are so sure of it, right? Like people who are evangelical about their faith and really want to convert people, to save people, like a lot of this comes from a deep conviction, and I'll be honest, I believe a deep terror that the lie of hell is real. The urgency that comes with you must believe what I believe because if you don't, you will be eternally tortured. Like I get that that feels very urgent. That would be very urgent. Uh, and for those of us who have been brave enough to defy some of the expectations of the strict religious context that we come from, what we were threatened with was eternal torture, right? And like defying something that is going to threaten you with eternal torture takes a tremendous amount of bravery and it doesn't always excise that terror from your body. Many of us continue to live with that even when we decide that's not true, like this isn't, this isn't godly, this is not what God wants for me, this is not what I choose for myself. So many of us can make those bold and courageous choices and still have that fear embedded in our being. And so I want us to examine a little bit how we know what we know. Because when it comes to these lies, so many of them are just sort of taken for granted. If you believe in God, of course you believe in hell. If you believe in the Bible, of course you believe in hell. And that just doesn't hold up or make any sense. And embedded in it is the assumption that what one person believes just sort of is true without any structure or logic behind it. So, for instance, I had a long email exchange this week with a gentleman named Luke. Uh, Luke, uh, it turns out, I learned in, in like email seven, uh, Luke likes to email churches he disagrees with and, and challenge them uh, to change their belief and admit to heresy and blasphemy. So that's what he was trying to get me to do. Uh, when he reached out, I was like, what are you hoping to get out of this conversation? He was like, I would like you to admit that you're a heretic and you're a blasphemist and you don't actually love God. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, disagree with the premise. But uh, anyway, part of what he said he wanted to do was reason with me, which kind of got, got me a little bit because this is my like philosophy school background. It's also like just a confession, like part of my personality that I'm not always super proud of is that is like a little percentage of the like well actually guy from Reddit. <laughs> like that's part, that's part of the mix in here. So I'm like, okay, bro, reason with me. And what he did was layer scripture on scripture on scripture. So he just kept sending me lots of texts. And I was like, none of this is an argument. You're not actually making a case. And he's like, well, you believe the Bible is true, right? And I was like, yeah. So what if I start just sending you verses, problematic verses, complicated verses, verses that don't align with the way that you're seeing things? 
And eventually, he had to break down and give me a framework, a lens for how he interprets scripture. Now, I thanked him for that lens. I immediately disclosed that I disagree with it and think it's fully wrong. But what I appreciated was that he finally got to a place where he said, well, this is the criteria against which I make my understanding and discern what is true. And that is true for all of us. So for him, he was basically like, ah, all of the Hebrew scriptures don't really matter uh, because Jesus came and the only laws that apply to Christians are laws that were reiterated in the New Testament. I disagree with that. But it's a frame of reference. It's a framework that says this is how I make sense of these contradicting or overlapping or interchanging scriptures. And we all have this. So I just, I, I'm, I'm telling you this story to establish that like even the people who think that what they're just doing is believing the Bible, even the people who just say, well, it's obviously true, getting back to our week one of this series, that's not what's happening. Theirs is a buffet too that they pick and choose according to rubrics that they may or may not acknowledge. So we have rubrics of understanding also, and it is important for us to acknowledge them, especially when we're unsure of what we know. Do I believe in hell? I don't want to. I have a hard time not, right? I know many people in this room, in this conversation, in this community are in that place. I don't want to believe in hell, but it still plagues me. What if I'm wrong? And so in those moments, we come back to how do we know what we know? Well, here in this community, one of the ways that we know what we know is through our stated values. We are Jesus-rooted, justice-centered, and radically inclusive. And so we begin with the life and teachings of Jesus Christ as represented in the Gospels. So that's one of our frames of reference. Another is, you know, that Jesus, that Jesus teaching and the kingdom as we understand it. We call it radical inclusion or radically inclusive community. We talk about solidarity here. But these are interpretive choices that we make based on our own community values and our understanding of who God is. There are a lot of different rubrics of knowing, though. And I talked about another one last week, one that's really important to the Wesleyan tradition, which is the theological tradition that we're rooted in here. And it's called the Wesleyan Quadrilateral. And if you don't want to remember that, immediately forget it. <laughs> Just know that there are four things, four things that we take into account as a community on purpose when we're trying to figure out what we know and why. And those four things are scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And so for this question of hell, if we want to entertain it seriously, because I don't want to dismiss this thing that plagues so many of us, even though I said up front and I'll say it again, I believe it's a lie, let's, let's get into it. Let's go through our quadrilateral. So we're going to start with scripture. Now scripture is difficult. All of these things inter interplay with one another, right? We can't simply look at scripture without engaging our reason or experience or the tradition. So it's hard to isolate these things, but we're going to start with scripture. So this is why we have our text today from Romans 8. Now Romans 8 is like a really good chapter. 
There are like a lot of bangers in Romans 8. A lot of the things that you may have heard out of context, just like little clips of whatever, and you're like, yeah, yeah. So many of them are like back to back in Romans 8. And I think it's important to know that because a lot of times we hear these verses taken out of context. But there are these layers of arguments and layers of meaning that are embedded in the scripture. And when we encounter them all together, they add up and build on one another. So in Romans 8, some of the things that you may have heard. And if you haven't heard them, just know that they're some of my favorites. So now there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Good opener. That's line one. You didn't receive a spirit of enslavement to lead you back again into fear. But you received a spirit that shows you are adopted as God's children. And in this spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The same spirit agrees with our spirit that we are God's children. It goes on later. We know that the whole creation is groaning together and suffering in labor pains until now. And later it says, for in hope we are saved. Now hope is that Hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what they already see? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And later, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And another favorite, all things work together for the good of those who love God. And so we have this picture of a God who has claimed us as kin, as family, who has offered their spirit to breathe with us, to groan for us, to be in labor with us through our suffering, to bring a new and holy thing into being. The kingdom, the connection, the restoration of love, and all things are working together for our good. When we love God, when we love love, when we love one another well, we are all moving in that same spirit of God that resides in us, that agrees with our longings of our hearts to say, I want to be loved by God. And the spirit says, yes, you are. You are claimed. You are loved. God is for you. Who can be against you? There is no condemnation here. And all of that is preface. All of that is preface to what we excerpted today. So what are we going to say about these things? What do we say about hell? What do we say about judgment and condemnation? Well, if God is for us, who is against us? God didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also freely give us all things with him? Who will bring a charge against us when God is the one coming to defend us? God is our defender, our protector. God claims us and protects us. Who is going to separate us from Christ's love? Will we be separated by trouble or distress, harassment, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. Paul's answer is no, no, no. We have a sweeping victory in love. And so all of those people who are threatening us, they don't know. They don't know who's defending us. They don't know whose love we are covered in. They don't know how deeply connected we are to the love of the whole universe. They don't know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. 
Not angels nor demons. Not the church. Not your parents. Not your grandparents and aunts and uncles. Not that preacher on the street who won't shut up. Not those guys on that forum. No one can take from you the love of God. And God doesn't want to. And this is one of the things that's so toxic about the church, is that the church has, in promoting ideologies of hell and eternal damnation, given you some idea that a loving God wants to withhold love from you. And that's just not true. But Jesus talked about hell, right? Um, questionable. So, Jesus actually didn't talk a whole lot about the afterlife because Jesus was very clearly concerned with how we live our lives now. This is one of the reasons, I think, that the church as a whole in our country and context has a tendency to focus on Paul and not the teachings of Jesus. Because Jesus actually wasn't really as concerned with building a structure or a theology, certainly not about trying to build an idea of, of eternal reward or punishment after death. Jesus was really concerned with building the kingdom here and now. How often did he say the kingdom is in you? The kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming and it's here. When Jesus talks about eternal life, he's talking about a life that begins now, a life that resides in you right now that you can either tap into or tamp down. Eternal life is not a, a reward in heaven. Eternal life is a call to action. Eternal life is a waking up. Eternal life is the kingdom in you and coming into fullness. And so when we talk about death, and what comes after death. All the times that Jesus is talking in ways that people have recruited into their ideas of hell are actually allegories, parables, and references to the local trash heap. So in Jesus' day, conversations about an afterlife were very different and pretty new to his culture. The Jewish people didn't believe in an afterlife at all for a very long time. And have you ever heard the, you know, we talk about the Pharisees sometimes, and there's also the Sadducees. If you've ever been like, who are all these people? One of the differences between them is what they thought about the afterlife, or rather whether they thought an afterlife existed at all. One of the trick questions they throw at Jesus is trying to make Jesus take a stance on whether there's something that happens after death. And Jesus does his little, you know, maneuvering out of it because he's Jesus. But like Jesus, when specifically pressed about what would happen after we die, was like, ah, you don't even understand. I'm not going to go there. Jesus was not concerned with laying out a path for what happens for you after you die. And if, if the thing that is most important about faith is avoiding eternal damnation, Jesus was like surprisingly silent on that front. Now, Jesus did talk about something called Gehenna. Gehenna. Now, this was uh, a reference. This is kind of, you know, the fire and the gnashing of teeth and stuff. Like, that's real. Jesus is making those references. He's usually talking about Gehenna. So, what is Gehenna? Gehenna was an actual place outside the city walls of Jerusalem. And the scriptures talk about it in a couple of different ways. Historians talk about it in a couple of different ways, and it's a little bit difficult to verify exactly what was going on there. But a lot of folks say, like, the best way to understand it, 
two things. One, the Hebrew scriptures def- uh, talk about it as a place where there were a lot of um, sacrifices of children to the god Molech. So there was some abuse, some violence that was happening in this place. And uh, another one is like, oh, that was just the city's trash heap. Very different, right? Like different types of places. Garbage dump, child sacrifice site. But let's, let's hang out in the garbage dump one for a second because that one's a little bit more supported. So the garbage dump would be where the city would dump its refuse, but also corpses. And it was just this pile of, uh, of discarded anything. Now, a place like that might have a lot of animals running around trying to feed on what was discarded, gnashing of teeth. And that would be really, really smelly. And one of the ways to control the smell, especially of decomposing flesh or food, would have been to set a lot of fires. So it was a place with lots of burning, fires, and gnashing of teeth. But the interesting thing about the garbage dump is that it is a pile of what has been discarded that becomes tamped down over and over again. And often, even things that would break down, if they were buried in the earth, for instance, don't get enough oxygen to actually break down. So they end up in a kind of stasis. The way that I think about Gehenna was completely changed when a colleague of mine, Tyler Sitt, who is well-versed in eco-theology, talked to me about trash heaps and the difference between a trash heap, for instance, and compost. Compost is is the way that we take things that have come to the end of that part of their life and we combine them with all the needed other parts of earth for them to break down. And once compost really breaks down, it becomes nourishment for a thousand other things. We bury it again in the ground, in our gardens, gratefully, and it helps to to become a new thing. Compost is, is akin to the cross in that way. We have this cycle of death and breakdown and grief into new life and nourishment and what comes next. The Christian way is cyclical. We think of it as linear. There is life, there is the cross, there is death. There is life again. But it's cyclical. It goes in these cycles. All of God's creation, if we're looking at creation to tell us who God is, we don't see life, death, life again, eternity with a mansion. We see life and death and life and death and new life and death. It's a cycle of loss and rebirth. And this, I believe, tells us a lot about what resurrection means. Resurrection isn't necessarily permanent. And in fact, even the phrase eternal life may be misunderstood by our modern understanding. The way that that's phrased in the Greek isn't life forever. It's life in the next, the the most kind of Simple corollary is eon, life in the next era, life in the next stage, life in what comes next. 
And so if we're understanding life eternal, it's not life which is fixed, life which is permanent. This brings us back to a couple of weeks ago, this static image of God, the golden calf, the one we can control, the one who will never change, the one who isn't threatening because we can measure and touch and control it. That's not God. That's our fantasy of God, permanence. That's our fantasy of God, immortality. But God who is God, the God of this earth who makes herself known through all of creation shows us that life in the next stage is actually about not resisting death and grief and loss, but moving through it. And the trash heap is a symbol of exactly what happens when we get stuck. The trash heap is stasis. The trash heap is where death becomes a stuck place, where it cannot break down, where we are clinging to what we have right now and holding on to it with every last breath, refusing to let what is break down and become something new. And if we want to return briefly to the idea, that horrific idea, that this was also a site associated with child sacrifice, we have, again, this image of a place where death does not give rise to new life, where death is stuckness, where we are trapped in between death and life. So Jesus is not talking about conscious eternal torment, Jesus is talking about the stuck place we get in when we cannot let go, when we cannot grieve, when we cannot lose perhaps power and privilege we have clung to, perhaps identities that are not serving us that we have clung to, perhaps the pain that we have gone through. But in any case, when we are clinging to what is and refusing to let it break down, it cannot become that rich, fertile compost of new life. We become stuck, stagnant. The life to come is the kingdom. The life to come is healing and wholeness. And that life persists through death over and over again, not just once. So we have this scriptural idea that hell is not eternal torture. It is that place where we can't move on, we cannot let go, we cannot allow ourselves to break down so that we can heal. And that is true at an individual level, that is true between us, that is true at a social and hierarchical level. What needs to break down? What needs to be mulched? What needs to be composted but refuses? That is the place of death. That is the place of hell. That is what I believe Jesus is talking about. And that is a place where it feels like there is no hope. And yet, we know that there is hope in Christ Jesus. We know that just because we can't see it doesn't mean we shouldn't hope for it. We know that we hope for things unseen. And so something as miraculous as breaking down all, every last system of evil and composting it into the ground to find something new and beautiful that could come from it, that seems so far beyond our imagination, and yet that is exactly what we are called to believe in. Taking every wound and pain all the violence 
and fear and terror we carry in our bodies and being able to process and grieve those things, compost them, and find new life can feel even more impossible. But that is the hope to which we are called. Hope in life to come. Hope that there is life beyond the fear in your body, the wound in your relationships. That is the promise of the kingdom. One of my professors in seminary asked us once, do we believe that God redeems all? And everyone said, yes, obviously. We wouldn't be here if we didn't think that. And he said, well, do you believe that God redeems the demons? And that challenged a lot of us. But my unequivocal answer is yes. That is where eternity comes into play. The eternity, the bigness of the story of God is the capacity, not the threat or reward, but the capacity of God. God has an eternity to redeem all things. We have an eternity to reconcile all things to one another and God. This healing doesn't have to happen in one lifetime. And we know that it can't. And so we get the opportunity of eternity, the God who says it is not over when you die. There is life beyond, and that is every little death of your life and the one that feels so big because we cannot comprehend what comes after. Every death is an opportunity to new life. I promise we have eternity to work this out. That is the promise of eternity not the promise of eternal punishment or eternal reward, the promise of eternal possibility and healing. That's scripture. Now, if we move on to tradition, we get a little shakier, right? We're like, oh, the tradition is the one that's been telling me I'm going to hell. Tradition can feel really scary to engage because so many people speak for the tradition. They're like, well, I believe it, and so did my dad, so it's, that's what's been true for 2,000 years. <laughs> if you want an actual history of some of the conversations and developments of heaven and hell, I recommend a book that I bought this week, so I have not finished it, uh, but it's called Heaven and Hell, A History of the Afterlife by Bart Ehrman, who is an incredible scholar, and it shows just how messy and unclear the tradition of hell actually is. Like when we think of hell, what most of us are thinking of is like, I don't know, who knows how many circles? Are there seven? Are there nine? A circular hell, a circular hell with many onion hell, many layers, with like demons, right? And like Satan's in charge and he's got a pitchfork. And all of that, thank you for shouting it out, Sam, all of that imagery comes from Dante's Inferno, which was like way after Jesus, like several hundred years after Jesus, and had very little to do with him. In fact, Dante's Inferno is, Inferno is actually one part of Dante's divine comedy. LOL! That's hilarious, dude! Yeah! Like, it was actually, it was a comedy. It was supposed to be funny. Like, we have all been terrorized by people who like didn't know how to take the joke. There are so many mythologies and threats and images that come from these like sideways places and got completely appropriated. 
because they are really useful for social control. There was a time, like a really long time, where the idea of heaven and hell was about who was in the church and who wasn't in the church. So what determined whether you were going to heaven or hell was whether you were like a member of a church. And like, we can see how, how patently silly and abusive that is, right? Like, like, oh, you're gonna go to hell unless you join my club, right? Like, you have to be in my club, otherwise eternal torture. And like, that's, right? But it's like, oh, but all it takes is being like, I sign the membership card, I pay my membership dues, gotta take it to eternity, right? Like, that's, that, okay. That changed when church became, believe it or not, too popular. <laughs> too popular. Because everybody was a part of a church. So then everybody was going to heaven, and they were like, well, we can't have that. <laughs> we have to be able to threaten people. Okay, how do we do it? Um, well, just because you're going to church doesn't mean you're going right. And that's when it became a lot more subjective. And lots of different people came up with different categories. Which is the unforgivable sin? Which are the things that are unforgivable by God? Because we can't just wipe it away with membership or baptism anymore. Now we've got to be more specific because we've got lots of people who say that they're members of a church and don't like do what I tell them to do. So the whole history of hell is this evolving story of art and culture and, and speculation and fear. Like in Europe, the Black Death was a huge part of it because in times of plague and loss, people were rightly, understandably, more fearful of death because it was surrounding them at every turn. And so people turned their fear into art and conversation and politics, and it became again a useful tool for control. There is no traditional consensus on hell. You are not, if you are saying, hey, I believe in God, but I don't believe in hell, you are not like suddenly defying millennia of doctrine. This has always been contested. And don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Additionally, you're not the first ones to think maybe there's no hell. Or maybe no one's in hell. Our good friends, the Unitarian Universalists, will be quick to remind us that that's a tradition that has many hundreds of years of history as well. People who say, hey, I believe in God. I believe perhaps in Jesus. I believe in the scriptures. And they lead me to believe in what is understood to be universal salvation. That God is not torturing anyone. That that does not fit with our understanding of the scriptures or of God. One of the primary figures of the universalist movement is Hosea Ballou who became a preacher in his teens because he was so fired up about this in the 1700s and became then one of the founders of this hundreds of years long tradition Unitarian Universalism. And he was the son of a, like, a, a farmer preacher. He was living in kind of like rural farming country. This was not like some philosophical, you know, ivory tower concept. He was just living and believing and praying and determining hell makes no sense. Hell makes no sense. One of the arguments that he put forward is about, in, about eternity. He says that human sin 
is finite. Why would an infinite God respond to finite human sin, that is to say, sin that will end, sin that is containable, sin that has a beginning, middle, and end, with infinite torture? That does not make any sense. You know what else is infinite? God's love. And again, this is something we all claim so readily. God's love is infinite. If God's love is infinite and our sin is finite, then who are we to say that our sin wins out in the end? That's what hell claims. But God's love is infinite and eternity is long. Opportunities for healing abound. And I cannot do any of that tradition justice. So I do encourage you to check out our UU neighbors and friends and some of the Unitarian Universalist theologians who have done incredible work on this for hundreds of years. Tradition. We have tradition on our side as well. Third, reason. This just doesn't add up. Like, this is the one that I could, I could go on for for days, but also I can just stand here and feel like I've summed it up in hell makes no sense. <laughs> hell makes no sense. We are told that God is loving. We are also told that God tortures people consciously for eternity. That makes no sense. Now, we've talked here before about how the word love is also really contested, but I know that love does not include torturing people. I know that we don't stand for that here on this earth. I know that in our, in your life, if you were or are in relationship with somebody who's in a relationship with someone abusing them, physically harming them, and they say, oh, but they love me, you know instantly that this is an unsafe situation and that this person needs support to get out. One of the hallmarks of abuse, along with gaslighting, which is essentially what we talked about last week, when the church tells you not to trust yourself, basically to think that you're crazy, and that you should only trust the church or whoever claims to speak for God. So in addition to gaslighting, coercion and threat of harm is fundamental to abusive relationships. And that is what the church is claiming. Another hallmark of abuse is minimizing and denying the abuse, especially when you say, you made me do this. And what is the church saying, if not, well, God will torture you for eternity, but only because you made him. He loves you. We would not tolerate not only this behavior, but even this framework in the relationships of the human beings that we love. That's not safe. It's not love. And it makes absolutely no sense. None. Threatening you with eternal harm and violence so that you don't leave or disobey is abuse. And our reason tells us that if our God loves us, our God does not engage in abusive, coercive, manipulative tactics. Reason is on our side. And finally, 
experience. You know God. I believe that because you are here. I also believe that because I know many of you to be loving and kind people who have experienced love and liberation, even in just tiny moments of perfection. And I say that because you are human beings made in the image of God with the spirit of God inflating and deflating your lungs, animating your very being. You know God because you are of God. And you know in your heart that God is loving and good. Otherwise, you wouldn't be seeking after God. God, trust in God, as we talked about last week, goes hand in hand with trust in yourself. And again, those abusive frameworks, that gaslighting teaches us to alienate ourselves from our own sense of judgment. You can't trust yourself. You have to blame yourself. You should feel guilty all the time. You have to outsource your sense of authority. But God gave you a spirit of authority. God gave you love that casts out fear. And I want you to examine yourself, your spirit, your experience, trusting in your lived experience. Does your belief in hell come from a secure place of knowing, or does it come from fear? Does your belief in God as good and loving come from a place of safety and hope? Or does that come from a place of fear? Our bodies contain a knowing that we can rely on. Our experience of love in this life contains knowledge we can rely on. You know what love is. You've felt it. And you know what unlove is, what violence is, what threatening is, what abuse is. You feel that in your body too. And so this framework, this traditional framework asks you to include that in your analysis. Is the idea of hell coming from secure attachment, coming from a solid foundation, come from standing on Christ your rock, or does it come from fear? Does it come from abuse of power? Is it a source of control that is outside of you? And if so, what's between you and God? What is real and holy and true in your relationship with the creator of the universe who holds out all eternity for your healing? Who says, we are in this together. Take your time, but don't stop moving. We are called to compost those things that would otherwise hold us in stuckness. It is time to take out the trash of hell and not just put it in storage, but to actually break it down and let it go to the earth, to God's good earth, and let it create something new, something truer, something holier. Now, what do we believe comes after death? That's an open question. But again, it comes down to trust. One of my uh, favorite things somebody has said recently about the afterlife was said by community member Rocky. Um, 
some of you are chuckling because you already know it's going to be good. <laughs> Rocky at Echo a couple months ago. And I've kept, I like asked him that night. I'm like, I'm going to say this. Is that cool? And he was like, yeah. Uh, but that's how good it was, I thought, a couple months ago when we were talking about what comes after we die. And he said, this life is like cash in hand. And the afterlife is like a check written to me by some guy I don't know. And what he was trying to articulate was like, I don't know if that's real, and I don't feel like I can count on it. So I'm going to invest myself in what's here now. And I really appreciated that. And I said, you know, I almost agree. And I thought about what feels true to me. This life is cash in hand. God is invested in our right now. Jesus is trying to tell us how to do the most with what we have right here. But the afterlife is like a check written in a currency I've never heard of, but signed to me by the person I trust most in the world. I have no idea what it means. I have no idea what it's worth. But I trust in the relationship that it will be what I need when I get there. Our belief in what comes next hinges on whether we trust God. Is God good? Does God love us? Can we be separated from that love? Now or in what comes next? And the scriptures tell us, God is good. There is no condemnation in Christ. God is with us as we labor into bringing something new into being through the pain and grief. And when we don't know how to even pray about it, God will pray. The Spirit will groan as we work through all of this together. But nothing, nothing along the way, nothing coming out of the shadows, nothing anyone says, nothing you can do can separate you from the protection, the support, the healing love of God who breathes you into being and who brings you into the next life over and over and over again. We don't know what comes next, but we know who comes next over and over again. It is God who loves us. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, this is such a big and important topic. God, I pray that you be with us in our bodies. If we are breathing deeply, may that nourish us. If we are struggling, if we are taking shallow breaths, God, please bring calm and peace to our bodies. God, if our minds are racing, quiet them. If our minds are lighting up, give us that next spark. God, you are good. Help us to trust in that. May that be the shining light that helps us determine what we believe is the trust in our relationship with you, the knowledge of your love for us, the promise of your very being. God, may we be loved. May we know we are loved. And may we ever and always look to your love to lead us. Amen. <laughs>